Let's take our Bibles tonight and return to our study of the Gospel of John. We have been systematically studying through this book, and we come once again to chapter 13 as we have been off for some time. And as we come to our text tonight, I want to just set the stage for our thinking and just read for us verses 16 to 30. Chapter 13, verses 16 to 30. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which of one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what, do you, what you do, do quickly. Now one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had, had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's just bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Heavenly Father, once again we come before you, we open your word, and we know our dependence upon your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to understand what you would have here these profound truths about your love and how we are encouraged to follow your example, Lord. So help us tonight to receive your message that you would have us here so that we might apply it in our own lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some time ago I was reading an article entitled Great Knights of the Bible, not K-N-I-G-H-T-S, but Knights as in dark. Great Knights of the Bible, the author C.E. McCartney shares an imaginary vision of one of the darkest nights in all of Scripture, somewhat like C.S. Lewis, and he writes this way. He says, quote, In my dream I was carried away to a great and high mountain where I saw the great city, the goal of all our hopes and desires, the end of our salvation, the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem. Around the city and around the earthly Jerusalem there ran a wall, a great wall, high wall. There were twelve gates, north, south, east, and west, and every gate was a pearl, and at every gate stood one of the great angels. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel from Reuben to Benjamin. The wall of the city stood upon twelve massive foundation stones, And on each of those stones was the name of one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And as I walked around the city, thrilling with joy and rapture at the glory and splendor of it, I read the names written upon the twelve stones, Peter, James, John, and all the others. But one name was missing. I looked in vain for that name, either on the twelve gates or on the twelve foundation stones, but it was not there. That name was Judas. That article, he jumps forward and he says, The longest night in history of the world is drawing to a close. The night is passing, but the day has not yet come. 
Far to the east over the mountains of Moab, there is just the faintest intimation of the coming day. The huge walls of Jerusalem and the towers and pinnacles of the temple are emerging from the shadows of the night. If the half-darkness and the half-light, I can make out a solitary figure coming down the winding road from the wall of Jerusalem toward the gorge of the Kidron. On the bridge over the brook, he pauses for a moment and, turning, looks back toward the holy city. Then he goes forward for a few paces and, again, turning, halts and looks up towards the massive walls of the city. Again, he turns, and this time he does not stop. Now I can see that in his hand he carries a rope. Up the slope of the Olivet he comes, and entering into the gate of Gethsemane, he walks under the trees of the garden. Seizing with his arm one of the low branching, branching limbs of a, gar- of a gnarled olive tree, he draws himself up into the tree. Perhaps he is the proprietor of this part of the garden and has, some, and has come to gather the olives. But why with a rope? For a little, he is lost to my view in the springtime foliage of the tree. And then, suddenly, I see his body plummet down like a rock from the top of the tree. Yet the body does not reach the ground, but it is suspended in midair. And there it swings slowly to and fro at the end of a rope. Unquote. I read that imaginary description, and I think in that description, McCartney does a fairly good job of giving us a picture of one of the most shocking moments in all of church history. It came on the heels of one of the greatest examples of love in all of church history. John sums up the start of that very reality with just four simple words. Chapter 13 and verse 30, he says, And it was night. As we ponder the truths of what is here for us tonight in this text, and as we think through the implications of the truths of this, in the outworking of our own Christian lives, we must not miss the primary principle that Jesus Christ is bringing before us as we study this portion of John chapter 13. Because I believe this is an issue that keeps some of us or many of us, if not all of us from time to time as Christians, It keeps us from filling what Christ has asked of us and by the Holy Spirit empowered us to actually do as Christians. Now before we get to the principle, let me just remind us what Christ has asked of His disciples who were there that night and by way of implication what He has asked all of His disciples by faith. Notice, once again, verse 16 and 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now you remember that Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. Jesus has just given... By way of example, because it tells us this is His example to us, He is given, by way of example, a a picture of what biblical love looks like in practice. And then He takes the time to explain it to them, what it all means. And He ends that portion of His teaching in verse 17 with the words that I just read to us. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You are blessed if you do them. The word blessed is the biblical word for the idea of happiness or real, true happiness. Not the happiness that we normally see and hear about in the world. This is real, true, biblical, 
God-given happiness. And so when you see that word in the Scriptures, you can normally exchange it in your own mind with that word happy in its truest sense. Not the world definition, but in its truest sense. And you get, or you, you, you get to have or you begin to have an understanding of what is being taught when you read the word blessed. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He is saying that true and lasting happiness in life is reserved only for those who come to God totally bankrupt of self. In other words, you cannot come to God and say, here I am, God, I want to believe in you, and, but, but I have, have this goodness or these pieces of me that are acceptable to you. No, you have to come to God completely bankrupt of self, and in that is true blessed happiness before God because it's them who receive the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the only one who will ever enter the kingdom of heaven are those who come through Jesus Christ. Real happiness is only found there in Jesus Christ. In other words, those who will not deny or or, or those who will deny any attempt at self-righteousness. If you will not deny the attempt at self-righteousness, then you have no need for Christ and His righteousness and thereby you have no way to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea. There's only one way into the kingdom of heaven and one way to true and lasting happiness in Matthew chapter 5 and it is through Jesus Christ alone. It does not come through wisdom. It does not come through the ways of the world. In fact, here's what The psalmist says, Psalm 1, shares the same truth with us. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And what's the result of that? He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. Juxtaposition of that, contra to that, is the wicked. The wicked are not like the blessed. Psalm 1, verse 4 and following, the wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, happy is the man who is firmly planted in the righteousness of God and His wisdom. He has turned his back on his own wisdom and the wisdom of the world. We know from our study of Romans, going all the way back to Romans chapter 1 in our own minds, uh, that to turn your back on God is to accept and to receive for yourself destruction and separation from God forever. And there is no true happiness in that at all. There is only complete sadness. Nothing could be more unhappy for a man than to spend eternity separated from God. So in the context of our passage tonight, here in John chapter 13, Jesus is implying that the very road to happiness is through Him. There is no other way for the blessed life. And those who are His disciples experience that happiness not just here and now, when our lives are lived on the tracks of humble love, but we will also live it in all eternity when... We see Him as He is. But His example tonight is just that reality. You will experience here and now that full-fledged idea of biblical true happiness, that Christ-like, Christ-following happiness in your life when you follow His example in love. You are blessed if you do them. We show Christ-like humble love when we do that. We willingly bow down in our own hearts to serve one another, to bear the sin of each other. Not bear it in a salvation kind of way, but bear the burden of it in a personal way. 
And the reward before God and with God is true happiness. But this is where the problem comes in for us. We know this. We know what the Scriptures teach us. We have been taught over and over and over again through our own personal study and through our own reading in our Christian lives about this principle. We see it perfectly demonstrated right here in Jesus Christ. And yet, we often struggle to carry it out. Why? Why? Well, I want to suggest to you the reason why is because of the Judas factor. Because of the Judas factor. You're sitting there, what are you talking about? Well, that's what I call it. The Judas factor. You can call it whatever you want, but what I mean by that is that we oftentimes struggle with showing Christ-like love and thereby forfeit the true happiness that Jesus is talking about. We struggle with showing Christ-like love to each other because with true love, there is always the potential for major disappointment. There is even the potential for betrayal. It's the Judas factor. Within our lives, God often allows various individuals who will often spurn our Christ-like love. And oftentimes we are idealistic in our minds. We have this idealistic view of what the Christian life is to be like. And in our thinking about love, we we think idealistically. And, And I think it's important for us to gain an understanding and realize that in spite of our love, in spite of our love for one another, in spite of carrying out what Jesus calls us here to carry out and the blessings that come with that, here's the other thing that we have to realize. Disappointments will come but that ought never deter us from following Christ's example that we see here in John chapter 13. Follow along with me from verse 18 through verse 20. Jesus says, I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, or he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. It seems seems a bit awkward in the context, at least, of this passage for Jesus to say what he does in those verses. But... If we just think about it for a moment, we can begin to gain at least some understanding of why and what it means for us in our expressions of love to one another. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that love is the outflow of knowledge. Right? Jesus knows all these kinds of things that are going on back in chapter, verse 1. Jesus knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world uh, to the Father. Having loved His own or in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to do what he was going to do. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, that He had come forth from God, that He was going back to God, in spite of all of that supernatural, superabounding omniscience, Jesus gets up from the table, straps on the garments of a slave, and begins to express love. Love is the outflow from knowledge. Jesus knew intimately who he was. He knew that he had all power. He knew who Judas was. And yet, he still chose to submit himself to the will of the Father and to leave the results 
of what would take place in the sovereign hand of the Father. And he expressed love not just to a few of the disciples, he expressed love to all of the disciples, even Judas. In other words, the eternal relationship, his relationship with the Father, overshadowed the temporal circumstance. His eternal relationship overshadowed the temporal circumstance, the ensuing trouble that was about to come, that he knew was coming. And this is the principle that we must focus on if we are to overcome the Judas factor. Our relationship with the Godhead must overshadow every temporal circumstance or we will continually live in an unhappiness in life. Oh, we may convince ourselves that we are happy, but the reality is the relationships that we are in are substandard by God's standard. Here it is. Jesus has already shown Himself to be God in the flesh. He has already shown Himself to know what it is that is going to take place in just a little bit of time. And what is amazing is that in spite of that supernatural omniscience, and more importantly, because of that omniscience, He washes His disciples' feet, including His enemy. Including the one whom He knew was going to betray Him. Now, we're not like that oftentimes. We, we begin to rationalize. And the rationalized excuse that we often use before God by saying, I know that they will take advantage of me if I do that. I know that if I reach out in that way, if I love in that way, if I show them those kindnesses in that way, I know they will abuse my gesture of sacrifice. And so we say before God, We didn't express that kind of love to them because we thought that person was going to betray us. That rationalized excuse will never fly in the face of our Lord who actually knew that Judas was going to betray him and loved him anyway. He knew that Jesus was going to sell him for a small price, for the price of a slave, actually, in ancient Palestine, 25 or $30 in our day and age. And yet he still loved Judas. He knew that in just a few short hours, those who were in that room would scatter for fear of their own lives. And yet he loved them. He knew that Peter would deny any knowledge of Him. In fact, even curse, saying He didn't know Christ. And He knew that we would treat one another with contempt. And yet He still sacrificed. Why? Because the eternal is much more precious than the temporal. Because the eternal is far more precious than the temporal. And I believe that this is one of the lessons that Jesus is desiring for all of us who are His disciples to learn. With love comes great disappointments. But unless you are willing to entrust yourself to the Father who knows all things, and continue to love no matter what disappointments might come, then you still do not know love. Jesus, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that Jesus entrusted Himself to the one who judges righteously. He didn't hurl insults. He didn't say anything. He he didn't threaten back. He, He didn't do anything in retaliation. Why? Because he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. The eternal relationship was much more important than anything temporal. 
Listen to what John says in 1 John 3, verse 16 and 17. We memorize John 3, 16 oftentimes and verse 17. But listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Well, that's great, John, but there's nobody running in front of a car that I need to push out of the way. I mean, that doesn't happen on any given day. So what are you talking about? Verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, John now narrows it down and expresses what Jesus is talking about. This reaching out into the lives of the temporal because of a relationship with the eternal. In John 13, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the blow of their life. One so close to all of them, one of their very own. One who has walked with them for nearly three years. One who is part of the family, one who was adored Uh, or one who was uh, afforded all of the privileges that they all had while they were with Jesus Christ, one who received the love that, that others had received, the same love that they had received from Christ, one who was about to hand their Lord over to death and not only betray Christ, but betray their relationship as well. That would be the blow for their life. Here is a brother so close. And so had Christ not prepared them prior to that moment, it might have crushed their faith in Christ. And he says, I know the ones I have chosen. I know the ones I have chosen, verse 18. I don't don't speak to all of you. I, I know the ones I've chosen but that the Scriptures would stand true, but that the Scriptures would stand so that you never doubt what the Scriptures say, and here's what the Scriptures say, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling this now to you before it happens so that when it does occur, you might believe in who I really said that I am. Verse 18 is the fulfillment of Psalm 41. Psalm 41. You say, why do you say that? Because in Psalm 41, David, King David, is crying out to the Lord and describing the very pain and disappointment that was inflicted upon him through his beloved friend and companion, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was very close to David. Ahithophel was one of his very close comrades. And listen to what David says in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This was crushing to David. Go back in the Old Testament and read about it in 2 Samuel 15, and you can see the crushing reality that that was to David. And it only got worse because his own son betrayed him. This is the way it happens. Those who are closest to us are usually the ones who hurt us the most. As I said, David's son Absalom rebelled against him, started a coup to overthrow the very king whom was his father to take the kingship, and David's close friend and trusted advisor, Ahithophel, joins in with Absalom against David. Psalm 41 is David's heart of disappointment over what had taken place. And so that's the wonderful picture of what Christ, through his relationship to Judas, is teaching us and his disciples right here. He's pulling in that betrayal from the Old Testament, that betrayal that took place on behalf of Absalom and Ahithophel to King David, and he's bringing that right here to this point. He's saying, that's the very thing that's happening here, one of my closest ones. Betraying me. 
Verse 20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. You see, Jesus is reminding them in that very moment, even after he says, I know my chosen, and this is to fulfill the Scriptures, he's telling them, don't forget your calling, don't forget your commission. This is what we do. We're not called to preserve self. We're not called to self-preservation. And listen, if we're going to love as Christ loved, then we need to rid ourselves of the lie of self-preservation. It's a lie. Self-preservation is simply a sin. We humans are self-preservation experts. And it's self-preservation that keeps us from loving as we ought to love. This is what Jesus is teaching. Nothing... Nothing in this temporal world should keep us from our commission and our calling to be ambassadors for Christ with the truth. Nothing. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you then, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your own soul, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says, listen, you weren't a people. God drew you in. God drew you in by His great love. And this example of love from Jesus Christ is our commission to go out and to tell people the truth no matter what it might cost us. And it doesn't really matter because when you keep your behavior right before the Lord, when the eternal is more important than the temporal and you love each other regardless of what it might cost you and by way of preservation of your own self, others see that. And on account of those very things, they glorify God. Jesus says in John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Why is that so true? Because it is so radically different from the love of the world. Think about it for a moment, what these guys might have thought as they pondered the betrayal of Judas. They might have said things like, this guy was one of us. This failure calls into question the reputations of all of us. His actions will cause all of us to be thought of with less esteem. The view of people who see us is going to be lesser than it was. The effectiveness of our ministry is going to be gone. Think about what goes through our minds as why we don't respond in sacrificial love as Christ did to a known enemy. Even when it's not known to us that someone is an enemy at all. But because we have been hurt before, because we felt the pain of of betrayal and disappointment and discouragement because we've loved somebody like we should and they stepped on our hearts, because of that, we, we don't open ourselves up to them anymore. We recoil to a mode of self-preservation. And our sacrificial Christ-reflecting love is quenched. For the husband in a home, we know the Bible tells us that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We listen to that command, we hear that command, we go to men's conferences, and oftentimes in the men's conferences we'll be challenged with that command, and we acquiesce to it in our minds and in principle, and we know that we are to do it in practical ways. But over the years, as we have been with our spouse, maybe 
And more than likely, we've been taken advantage of by our family. We've reached out in love, and yet we've been taken advantage of. Maybe it isn't that you were treated with the respect that you thought you deserved. Maybe that's even true, that you weren't treated with the respect that you should be. Maybe the family hasn't reciprocated as you know the Bible says they should. And yet, they claim to be a Christian. We've been hurt from that. Our emotions are stung. Some of us have family members who have failed us even though we've spent our lives loving them. they failed us more and more and more. And you love and you get another failure. And so you know what happens oftentimes? The Judas factor takes effect. We go into self-preservation mode and we protect ourselves against the Judas factor. We love with temporal things in mind, not eternal. We express a love by our definition. Not like Christ's love. Why? Because we don't want to get hurt again. We don't like to get hurt again. We don't want our reputations ruined. We don't want to be thought of as weak. We don't want to be seen as someone who can't control the situation. Rather than our knowledge of of what is eternal overshadowing the temporal, we focus on the temporal instead. It becomes all about us rather than about reflecting the love of Christ. Let me me ask us a question for our thinking tonight. You don't have to answer it aloud, obviously, but I want you to think about it. Here's the question. What kind of previous opposition to your acts of love or even the outright hypocrisy shown by some to your acts of love that have been revealed over time? What about those have tempted you to recoil into an unhappy cocoon of self-preservation? Think about it. Think about your own life and your expressions of love to people, expressions of love in your own family, expressions of love within the biblical family, expressions of love even when it's very difficult to express love, even when you have to challenge one another for wrong thinking and wrong activities and all kinds of things and how God's love is expressed to us by discipline and by kindnesses. What kind of opposition to those things has caused you to recoil into this cocoon where you go, I'm just not going to go there anymore? What is it that has tempted you to forego your commission and your calling to represent Christ to even the potential traitor who you might know? You see, I believe this is one of the lessons that Jesus not only wants the disciples to know who were there that night and wants them to understand, but I believe He wants us to understand it as well. The Judas factor is a serious thing. In fact, if we want to think about the reality of what it cost for Jesus to love like this, Hebrews 12 gives us an example and an exhortation on that. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3 just says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, In other words, those who live by faith. Let us also, that is just like they did, that's the idea. In the same way that they have, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you see? The eternal needs to overshadow the temporal. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. 
He despised the shame. It didn't matter. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you too may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus said, I've given you an example to follow. What example is that? This example of Hebrews chapter 12. Love like that. Love like that. I love verse 4. Hebrews chapter 12. Because we always say, I've done enough. I've loved enough. I've reached out enough. I've, sh- I've given enough. I've sacrificed enough. We, we like to say that in the human realm. We like to think that. In fact, we, we even justify it in ourselves. And we do a pretty good job of justifying it. And yet, verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Oh, really? You've sacrificed enough? Show me the blood. Show me the nails in your hands. The crown of thorns on your head. One of my professors in seminary used to say who was very emotive, Show me the blood! That's what he said. Seminary students like to get very prideful in all they've sacrificed for the Lord. And he says, show me the blood. Tim knows exactly who I'm talking about. doesn't matter what might take place in life with those to whom God has given us the privilege to have even an acquaintance with. We must never relinquish our commission and our calling to love as Christ loves us. One man put it this way, one commentator, quote, no matter what satanic opposition we run into, no matter how frustrating our personal ministry might become, nothing can lower our commission, unquote. Christ says in verse 20, don't forget your commission. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, Whomever I send. Jesus says, whomever. That means that what Jesus is saying is not just for those who were there physically present that night. It's whomever I send. Not just you guys, but whomever I send throughout the course of history to somebody. That's you and I. So this is the point. As believers in the world, we represent Jesus Christ. We represent Jesus Christ in every relationship that we are involved in. doesn't matter if it's Christian relationship, Christian to non-Christian relationship. doesn't matter. We represent Christ in every relationship we are in. And as true as it is that every person we deal with in life ought to receive the love of God through us, with, with open arms, especially those who are within the family of God, the reality is that not all are going to willingly receive it. That's the reality. Even Peter had a hard time with Jesus that night because Peter was clueless. He's like us. No, no, God, you, you, you listen, you don't need to help that. You don't need to do any of that. Some people are going to ebb and flow with receiving our love. Others might be like Judas or Ahithophel or Absalom and plan to just play the game for a time and then turn their backs on God altogether. And we have to remember that when a person rejects us, that's what Jesus says here. He who receives me, he who receives whomever I send, receives me. When they are rejecting us, they are rejecting Christ. And to reject Christ is to reject the Father. He who receives me receives Him who sent me. But if they reject us, they reject Christ, they reject the Father, that should never lower our efforts. It should never remove our calling before the Lord. It should never lower the reality of what we are called to do and what Jesus Christ is setting the example for us to do. 
even if we are confronting sin. Confronting sin is an issue of love. It must be done. There's one last truth that I want to highlight for us tonight. Not only did Jesus want them to not be discouraged in their love through the disappointments that were going to come, but also I believe that He wanted them to not limit their love on the basis of what others did or did not do. In other words, just because Judas didn't love in return is no excuse for us not to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We could say it this way. The example of love that we must keep our eyes on is Christ's love and not those of the earth. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Someone may be setting a great example of love. But because of our humanity, they're going to fail. They're going to fail. But Christ never fails. And the proof of loving them all was the fact that they were all confused by his next statement. Notice what he says in verses 21 to 30. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples are looking at each other. And they're at a loss to know which one he's speaking. They don't have a clue who he's talking about. And so Peter, as Peter does, as we guys typically do, we're sitting across a room and we see one sitting next to you. Hey, hey, ask him who that is. What's he talking about? And Jesus answers, The one for whom I shall dip a morsel and give it to him. When he dipped a morsel, he gives it to Judas. And after the morsel, Satan then enters into him. And Jesus says, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said that to him. Even though Peter had had motioned to John and John had asked Jesus and Jesus had said what he said and Jesus did what he did, nobody has a clue of what's going on. For some, they were supposing because Jesus had the money box that Jesus was dispatching him by the things that we have need for the feast or else that he should give some to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he, that is Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. Jesus loved them all, even though he knew that they all did not love him. And there's the lesson. If we use how we are loved by others, in how we love others, we will always have reason not to love. But when we see Christ, when He is our focus, then we only have reason to love. Since Christ has loved us, so we too ought also to love one another fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. John says, and it was night, but Christ is the light. How foolish and how unhappy we will be if we take our eyes off of the one from whom all good things flow. Judas went his own way, and Judas found darkness forever. The rope in his hand, finding a tree, 
threw the rope over a branch, hung himself. It was truly night for Judas. It's not night for us. But we know the one who is the light. And so I trust that our relationship with Jesus Christ, our eternal relationship with Christ, I trust that that would be the central focus in everything that is temporal here and now. Let the eternal overshadow the temporal. Forget the Judas factor. And just love as Christ told us to love. And the world will know that we are his disciples when we love one another. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for your great expression of love. The way you showed such a wonderful overcoming of the things of the here and now, the disappointment. You knew it all, and yet you loved anyway. You could have sent Judas out before You ever washed the disciples' feet and showed them love, and yet you chose not to do that. You chose even to love one whom you didn't choose to be your own. Regardless of the betrayal that would come that you knew was going to come, regardless of what is going to follow in just a few short hours in the ministry of your life on this earth, you knew it all. We know none of that. All we know is sin abounds And disappointment will come and hurt will come and struggle will come and betrayal will come and yet we are to fix our eyes on you, follow your example and love one another so that the world says, what in the world is with those people? And we can open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. Help us love one another like that, Lord, whether it's kindnesses we are sharing, whether it's seeing a brother in need and we open our hearts to them in many, many ways, whether it's a Galatians 6.1 issue where we are loving a brother through going and confronting some, someone in a sin. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to love regardless of what may come in the temporal because we focus our minds on the eternal. Let us be an example of your love to us as we love one another for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.